Father, I can't help but think of that song, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I pray for those people who need a redeemer today, who don't know you personally, who don't know you as the payment for their sins. And I pray today that they would be convicted of their sins and their need of a Savior. And I pray that they would see that they have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray today that they would call upon the name of the Lord in repentance and faith, trusting fully in Christ as the payment for their sin, and that they would be born again. And then that song also says that you are a rock. And I pray today that we are casting our anchor upon the rock that won't move. I pray that we are building our lives upon the firm foundation of the rock that won't be moved when the storms of life come like the sinking sand. And I pray, Lord, that that line that is also in that song, may all my days bring glory to your name. And so whatever may be happening in our lives, may we bring glory to your name as we go through storms, as we cross deserts, as we scale mountaintops. I pray, Father, whatever it is we do and wherever it is we may find ourselves today, may all our days bring glory to your name. Thank you, Lord, for the trials that you have seen us through. Thank you for the heartaches and the hurts where you have comforted us. Thank you, Lord, for the joys that you placed in our lives that we don't deserve. And thank you, Father, for the future and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and what we have waiting for us whenever we get to heaven. But in the meantime, may heaven splash over onto us and come into our soul today. And may we love you, may we know you, and may we trust you more as we leave. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we pray your blessing on each one of them. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen and amen. If you would uh, take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're in the third chapter. And as Paul is writing, relating to these people that he loves so very much, he prays for them. And uh, if you ever want to learn how to pray... Look at what Jesus said in the model prayer. As uh, the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them. And then also, uh, you'll be blessed if you will just go through your Bible sometime. And every time Paul uh, expresses a prayer, just take time to kind of camp there and take a look at it and learn how to pray. Because one of the things you'll find is uh, Paul's prayers are so much different than our prayers. And as I looked at the way he prayed for the Thessalonian church, I thought this is a good thing for us to look at this morning, how to pray for your local church, because we tend to be um, somewhat superficial on things. What do we pray when we pray for our church? Well, we pray for numbers, and there's nothing wrong with that. We want to reach more people. We want to grow. Sometimes we pray for more money. There's nothing wrong with that. Whatever you give and however you give, we'll use it and we'll do our best to use it for the glory of God. 
We pray for uh, those type of things. We pray sometimes for excitement and joy and services. And we pray for relationships and those kind of things. And I wouldn't say that any of those things are necessarily wrong, but they are somewhat surface. What Paul does when he prays for the Thessalonian church is he prays for things that will address everything that I just mentioned. But it doesn't make those things as the focus of the prayer. It goes deeper than that, deeper down to the root of all of it. Because when the root is right, you can't help but have the fruit. The root determines the fruit. And sometimes when we're rooted in the wrong things, we get a little bit upset because the fruit isn't what we expected or what we wanted. But when the root is right, the fruit will be right as well. And Paul is taking a deep dive down into the foundation of the church and what it is that they really need that will affect all of the other things because he is praying about the things that really matter, the things that are important. So um, would you follow along as I read from 1 Thessalonians 3? 11 through 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish or strengthen or comfort or fix your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. And of course, he deals with that in the very next chapter. He says, There's a day coming where the uh, voice of the archangel is going to sound and the trumpet of God is going to sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then all we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds. And that's what he is making reference to here. So just a few verses. And uh, um, when we look at those things and we look at the, the uh, way that he prayed and we try to kind of organize it and think about it, Consider this, he is praying, first of all, for them to come together, for them to be together. And I thought about that, and I thought about how churches and people that know God and love God love one another. Jesus said the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. The Bible says if we say we love God and we hate our brother, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. It's just the two things are always linked Together. And so because Paul loved God and he loved the Christ, the, uh, his, his, the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, he necessarily loved the body of Christ, the local church there at Thessalonica. He wasn't with them very long. They had not been able to really deepen relationships the way that we might traditionally think of it. But they were bound together in the love of God and uh, the cords that could not be broken were the cords that were put there by the Holy Spirit of God. They were brothers. They were sisters. They were family. And so they loved one another. The Thessalonian believers loved Paul. Paul loved them and longed to see them and they longed to see him. They wanted to be together. And that made me think of all of the verses in the Bible that talk about churches being together. For example, 
As you know, Hebrews 10.25 says we're to gather together and we're not to forsake the gathering together of the church. We're supposed to be together. There's something wrong with people that claim to love the Lord but they don't want to be together with their brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a command of Scripture. But you also think about the fact that we could all be together in one room and still not be together in spirit, together in terms of unity, together in terms of our mission. We could be scattered all over the place and uh, having a thousand different things that we all are thinking. We've got to get it together. We've got to get our act together, somebody might say. And we've got to be unified. Think about how Jesus prayed in the garden when he was heading toward the cross and he prayed for the church, for believers, that we might be one even as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. We're not to be disunified. We are not to be at odds with one another. We're not to be heading all different directions. We are to have the same love and the same mission and we are to be committed to the same things. We have to be unified in the Word of God. We have to be hungry for the truth of God. We have to be applying the truth of the Word of God everywhere that we go so that in our diversity of personalities, our diversity economically, our diversity racially, our diversity in personality and uh, our diversity in occupation, all of this, we all have one magnificent obsession and that is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ which means we've got to know him and the only way we're going to know him is to know his word and by the way it's really as we get to know Christ that we really get to know one another we've got to have our focus upon him and him uh, being the uh, the thing that really is what the, the uh, uh, magnet I guess that pulls us together or him being the subject, I guess, that we're all studying, that we're all growing in. And the pursuit of God is what we're really after. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And so this reminds us this has to be the work of God. Paul wanted to get together with the church at Thessalonica. Why didn't he? Because he said in just a verse or two previously, but Satan has hindered us. How is Paul going to overcome the hindrances of Satan? And the answer is he's not. It has to be God that does this. And so Paul says, I wanted to see you. Satan hindered me. Now my prayer is that God would overcome all of the work of the enemy and that he would indeed bring us together. And so if there's ever anything that keeps us apart, that keeps us from living in the unity of the Spirit and being together in the things of God. We know one thing, that's not the will of God, and that's not the Holy Spirit that pulls us apart, that drags us apart, that causes us not to be in harmony with other people, not to love other people, to be separate from other people, to isolate ourselves from other believers. That's not the Spirit of God. That is, of course, demonic. And that is a hindrance to you, that's a hindrance to the church, that's a hindrance to our mission. We are to be unified in everything that we do. And we are to lay aside our personal rights, we are to lay aside our wants and our desires for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and for the will of God. 
And so as we do that, then we witness for Christ. And as we do that, we help other people. As we do that, we pray for other people. As we do that, the church begins to grow. As we do that, people give. As we do that, all of the other needs we've been talking about seem to uh, take care of themselves. But this one thing is so incredibly important, and that is the unity, the fellowship, the togetherness, the oneness of the believers in the local church. And so Paul prayed for that. They had every reason to scatter. They had every reason to divide. They had every reason to be uh, political. They had every reason to go in a thousand different directions. But they chose to focus upon, upon the author and finisher of their faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about this. How do we get together on this? Well, think about this. God is a relational God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune God. And they relate together, they work together, and they're in perfect harmony. And that's why Jesus in John 17 said, I pray that they would be one as we are one. And only God can bring us together like that. How important is this? Well, it's important enough that God said, I want you to be saved and in my family and to be one with me. And how does he do that? He sends his son and his son is butchered on a cross, bears the wrath of God in our place on the cross so that you and I could be in the family of God. If God could do that, then he can make you love that spouse you have trouble with. He can make you love that parent you have trouble with. He can make you love that neighbor or that church member that annoys you. This is something that God specializes in and something that he does. And it's important because our unity shows to the world who God is and what it is that God can do. You say, well, there are some people in the church that just really, really annoy me. Yeah, and the more you love them, the more obvious it is that it's a work of God and not just an affinity that you naturally have. Not just the fact that your personalities get together or you have common interests. It is a work of God because people that shouldn't love each other actually do. And they love not just in their words, but they love in their actions. They love in their ministry as well. And where does that come from? From a holy God who has all kinds of enemies on the earth of whom you and I once were enemies and he makes us into friends. And he says, Greater love has no man than this than that one should lay down his life for his friends. And that's more than just something that we say on Memorial Day or a Facebook meme. That is making reference to Jesus himself because he lays down his life for us and he has the power to take it up again. Only the sovereign God could stop the hindrances of Satan in all of this. Now I want to show you on the next slide this is the way that most people read their Bibles. Can you read what that says up there that's not scribbled out? Judge not. That's all they get and the rest of it is all marked out. 
and we go through the Word and we find the things that we like. We find the things that we could quote on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. We look at the things that we could use maybe to clobber somebody else over the head and this is not what brings us together. It's when we take away the scribbles and we say, Lord, I want to do whatever it is you want me to do as revealed in the Word of God. And if everybody here this morning would do that very thing, unity would be a natural byproduct out of all of that. And the natural byproduct of unity, Jesus said, that when others see the love we have for one another, then they will know that we're his disciples. Boy, evangelism just got taken care of. And as we love one another and as we love the lost and as we are working together with all of them, everything else begins to fall into place. But here is where Paul started with it. We want to be together in all of this. And I know that Paul was specifically talking about himself going to be with the Philippians. But by extension, you can understand and see that is the cry of the heart. We want to be together, and we want to be together in spirit. We want to be together in our mission. We want to be together in what we love. And beloved, we're only going to do that as we get into the Word of God and we find out who God is as we get to know Him and as our focus is upon Him instead of each other and how they treated me or what they said about me or what they did for me or what they didn't do for me. There's all kinds of ways to get your feelings hurt in church if, if you're not focused upon the Lord. But if you focus upon the Lord, all of those other things grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. But we have trouble getting over that because we're misreading the Word of God and we're ignoring the parts that we don't like. And we've got to quit doing that. Secondly, Paul prays, not only bring us together, but increase our love. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you. Have you ever prayed to grow in love? Sometimes we think that love is this feeling that we have, and oh, it's a wonderful feeling, and it is so good, and we forget that love is also a choice, it's also a commitment, there are those times when that person that you stood in front of a preacher in a congregation and promised to love them and to honor them and to cherish them. But then the preacher had to meddle and he had to put some things in there. In sickness and in what? Health. Okay. In poverty or in wealth. And uh, in good times as well as the difficult times. Forsaking all others, I cleave only unto thee, the traditional vows say. What is he talking about and why do we have to do that? Because when we are feeling the feeling, love is not really a problem. But what do you do when the feeling is not there? And what do you do when the need of the other person is so great and you don't really feel like meeting that need, yet you do it anyway? Think about 
some of our people that are caring for spouses with dementia right now? Do you think they wake up every morning and say, oh, this is the answer to my prayer. My spouse doesn't know my name and I get to take care of them. No, it's not a feeling-oriented thing at all. Do you think that when a spouse is taking care of a husband or wife with cancer, going through chemotherapy, do you think they wake up in the morning and say, another day of chemo, answer to my prayers, I get to show my love to my mate? Probably not. They don't get real excited about cleaning up after them when they throw up. They don't get excited about helping them when they're too weak to get up out of a chair. And yet they do it. Because the Bible says, let us not love in words, but in deeds and in truth. And the truth of the matter is, your deeds really do express your love, don't they? When it's difficult, when it is hard. After all, the Bible says God demonstrated his love toward us. Well, of course he did. Aren't we just such great and wonderful people? I mean, God ought to love us. That's what a lot of people think. And yet the verse says, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God found me. I didn't find him. And he found me at my worst, not my best. And that is true for every person in this room that has been born again. At your worst, he found you. And at your worst, he died. That's what we do and that's the example that we follow. And yet so many times we want it all. We want to chase the feeling. We want to follow our wicked, deceptive heart, our selfish heart that wants everything for us. And we want to have the fun and the joy and the zing and the zip of all of it. And God says, no, get down to the now, the nasty now. Get down and dirty in all of this and, and minister and to serve because that's what true love is as demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul prays that they would grow in love. It's something you need more of. It's something you can have more of. And he prayed that they not only would grow in it, but they would abound in it, that it would gush out of them, that it would overflow out of them. You know, if you're saved, anybody can find love in your life. Anybody can see the love of the Lord in your life, or you're not born again. If it's not there, you're not saved because God is in those who are born again and God is love. Now the problem is, it's kind of like if you went up to a grapevine and you said, oh, grapes, where are they? And You dig around through the leaves and you dig around through the leaves and then you find a little shriveled up raisin looking thing. And there it is. Well, it's a grape. Somebody said raisins are grapes with their hopes and dreams sucked out of them. Isn't that about right? And there are some of you that, yeah, you've got fruit in your life just enough to identify you as a Christian, but it's not very pleasant. It's not very appetizing. It's not in abundance. It's not anything that you can really share. It's just enough to kind of make you be marked off and identified as a Christian. And that's why the Lord Jesus said, in I believe it's the 15th chapter of John, that the Lord Jesus 
is cultivating you in his vineyard so that you will bear not less fruit, but more fruit. In fact, he says in that chapter, herein is the Father glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit remain. So Paul is talking here about the fruit of the Spirit, which one of the things that is included in that fruit is love. It's the first thing mentioned. It's the most God-like characteristic we can have. And Paul prays here for the Thessalonians not just to have a little bit, not just to have some you have to look for, not just enough to identify you and make you feel secure as a Christian or to wear it as a badge so that other people that can see that you're saved, but to increase in it and to abound in it so that you can share it with other people so that it actually overflows. And this is the thing that we want to do. We don't want to just possess love. We want to give love. We don't just want to experience love. We want to share that love. And so it's got to increase and it's got to abound in us. How long has it been since you prayed a prayer that said something like this? Dear Lord, because you are love and you are unlimited, then I pray you would expand my capacity for you and you would let me overflow Grow and overflow with love that only comes from you. And so to grow and overflow is what they are doing. And uh, he's wanting them to give it as well as receive it. And he says it is to one another. There are a lot of one another's in the scripture. The way we are to treat one another. And um, the most prevalent one of all of them is we are to love one another because that pretty much takes care of all of it if we do but he not only says it's love for the church and the people of God but he says it's love for one another and to all you're supposed to love your lost neighbor you're supposed to love your lost boss your lost co-workers people you go to school with that are lost we have to have a love for them and frankly many times we don't really love them as we should because we're not increasing and overflowing with love and yet that's exactly what Paul wanted them to do. Vadi Bakum says, The modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love a Jesus they don't know very well. Isn't that the truth? And you don't really love what you don't know. Now you might romanticize it, and you might fantasize it. In some cases you might lust after it, but you don't really love someone that you don't know you say oh well then here's a problem I love this person and I don't really know them and then when I get to know them I don't really love them well see your love is all out of whack and you've got a selfish type love and it's more of a lust than it is a love when the love of Christ comes through you, you are having the love that finds other people even at their worst, just like the Lord found you. And you give love to them at their worst, just like God gave his love to you at your worst. And you've got to get to know him and be filled with him in order to do that. So Paul prayed, Lord, bring us together. And then he prayed, increase our love. That, that, those would be good, good prayers for you to pray for Graceway. Thirdly, make our hearts stable and pure. Have you ever noticed how many believers now, their hearts are not pure? They're involved in all kinds of sin. They're involved in all kinds of things that 
they're embarrassed about. They're involved in things that are self-destructive. They're involved in sexual sin. They're involved in materialistic greed. They're involved in covetousness. They're involved in a kind of a self-idolization. It's all about me. And on and on and on we could go with all of that. Paul said, no, it really needs to go to the heart. And the heart needs to be stable. And it needs to be blameless before God. So many people are not stable in their heart. They may appear to be calm on the outside, but on the inside they're falling apart. They may uh, appear to do the right thing because people are watching and looking, but when nobody's watching or looking, they just absolutely fall apart. Now, I'm not talking about simply expressing emotion or anything. I'm talking about panic. There are a lot of people today that live in a state of panic. Everything scares them. Everything makes them afraid. They can't enjoy life. They can't enjoy other people. They can't enjoy their circumstances because they are terrified about everything that is going on. And the Bible says we are supposed to rest in Him. The word establish here in in my version, it can mean to strengthen. It can mean to fixate upon something, keep your heart fixated upon the Lord and the things of God. And it can also mean to make it stable or firm like a foundation does for a building. And our hearts need to be that way because there are so many things that hit us today, that distract us today, that frighten us today, that cause us to panic today. Our heart has to be established made stable and fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says this other thing too, that he wants our hearts not only to be established, but he wants it also to be uh, blameless before the Lord. You know, there are those times when we can act in a blameless manner. We can act in a manner that appears to be holy. Okay? Someone comes up to you. And they talk to you and, and they say, am I bothering you? And you go, oh, no, 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 that's what I'm here for. You're not a bother until they walk off. Right? You see them coming next time and you go, hide. There they are. Because we're so used to performing. Paul said, I want it to be that your heart is blameless. Because God sees the heart. People see your performance, God sees your heart. And Paul wanted the Thessalonian believers to be at the place where God would look at their heart and at their heart he would see where they were with him, what they wanted, what they desired. You know, it's one thing when you uh, do something that's wrong and you hurt somebody else and you do it intentionally. Or you do it maybe even... Uh, in a way that was just kind of cruel and mean and negligent and hurtful, that type of thing. It's another thing when they know maybe you didn't do everything you could, maybe you didn't do it right, maybe you didn't do it the way that you should have done it, but they can tell that that wasn't really your heart. It was something that happened because you're an imperfect, fallen uh, person, a believer who is not yet perfected in the Lord. And if you had it to do all over again, you would correct it because your heart was right in the situation. May it be said of us 
that even though we may fail sometimes, we may stumble sometimes, we get attacked, we get tripped up, but yet our heart was steadfast upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul said it all comes from the heart so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the one who actually sees it, the one who is the one who judges our hearts and may it be uh, fixed upon him. Um, let's move on now and let's go um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. And uh, Paul writes there, And he died for all, all believers here, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And that's how you know your heart is stable when you understand, first of all, what Jesus has done for you, and secondly, that you are doing everything you do for him. Are you going to be 100%? Not in this life. But you ought to be growing. And that ought to be the pursuit. And that ought to be the motive that you have in your life. Not just to appear good before other people. But to actually have your heart be blameless, innocent before the Lord. And so Paul prays, fourthly then, and let us finish well. Notice how he ties this in. Blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. You see, when you find that there's a justification before people, is my Christian testimony something you can trust? Well, James says it ought to be. In James 2, 18, he says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. They ought to be going together, and it's our works that justify us before people that's what makes our testimony real and James goes on to say if all you say well it doesn't matter I believe in God that's all that matters and he says even the demons believe and they tremble so if you uh, are just a person that you just don't really care about anything or anyone else and all of that well you've got a good demonic faith but it may not be a real faith James said, show the reality of your faith by the way that you act and the way that you treat other people. But it doesn't just go there because Paul writes in Romans about being justified before God. In Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In other words, when everything is right, I have a good testimony on earth before people and they have every reason to believe that my profession of faith is real. And because of the grace of God, because I put my trust in Christ and what he did, his righteousness is mine and put on my record book and my sins are paid for. I have hope before the Lord and I stand in grace and so my relationship with God is good and my relationship with people, it is good as far as I can control it or have anything to do with it. And I'm always ready for the Lord to come. You know, we all sing about going to heaven and then live a hellish life, don't we? And we talk about when the Lord comes, he'll set everything right. Well, if the Lord came today, would you be ready? 
And by that I do mean, are you truly born again and would you be ready to meet the Lord? And secondly, if you are born again, are you living up to your potential? Are you living for His glory so that you won't be ashamed when you stand before Him if He were to come today? We always think there's going to be a manana one of these days. I'm going to get it. One of these days, I'm going to start doing what I want to do. One of these days, things will settle down. One of these days, it'll be easier. And you know that that manana never comes. It just pushes things off, pushes things off, pushes things off. How embarrassing would it be to stand before the Lord today with all of these things that we could have done, should have done, knew we needed to do, but we were pushing them off to a, mar- to a tomorrow that will, <coughs> pardon me, never come. And so Paul is saying, fourthly, I want you to finish well. Okay? So here's, here's think about it, what he prayed. And does this not encompass everything? He prayed, I want us to be together, to be unified. I want us to have love that is growing and that is abounding, overflowing even to the lost world. I want us to have hearts that are holy and blameless and established, not panicked before the Lord and before the world. And fourthly, I want us, when our time comes, either through death or the coming of the Lord, I want us to finish well. What would you do if you knew that this afternoon at 4.30 that your heart was going to stop, would it change your schedule? Would you make some phone calls? Would you try to make some things right? Would you return some money and maybe a lawnmower or two or something like that? I mean, what would you do? Well, that's the way that we are supposed to live because it's not about finishing. We're going to finish. The key is it's about finishing well finishing well this is all quite impossible to do without the lord one writer said it is quite impossible to do without the weather forecast or, pardon me i misread that it is quite possible to do without the weather forecast when life is comfortably safe boy if anybody ought to know that it ought to be people that live in oklahoma city right there are those days when Somebody says to me, what's the high supposed to be? I don't know. Is it supposed to rain? I don't know. I don't have any idea. I haven't really looked at the weather. But then there are those days. There are those days. There's just a feel in the air. You look up and you see the clouds. Things are moving in. And if you live around here, you know what you say then? I better go look at the weather. And I really don't give a rip about David Payne or any of those other ones in day-to-day life. Okay? And you may not like him. You may watch one of the other ones. Whatever. Don't, don't get fixated on the name. But all of a sudden, whenever the sirens go off, they're on TV all the time. And you know what's really crazy? We watch them. We watch them. Jeremy said that when they were in Albany, New York, nobody knew the names of the weathermen. Everybody knows the names of the weathermen here, don't they? Why? Because when everything's cool and nice and breezy and sunny and all of that, nobody cares. Nobody looks at that. 
But boy, when you see the clouds come up, when you have that field that's in the air and it's a certain time of year, you go, is there something happening I need to know about? All of a sudden you need that weather forecast. So what's the point? Why are you talking about weather? Okay, here it is. Because that's the way you treat God. You live as though you don't need Him. You live as a practical atheist until the doctor says something, until the phone call comes, until the accident occurs, until the political thing happens, and then all of a sudden God becomes very, very important to you. No, He should be important to us all the time because He is our life, the Scripture says. And so we think about these four things that we looked about and why should we pray for those in the church because they teach us something about God God is unified never a disagreement between the Father and the Holy Spirit or the Son and the Father or anything like that and he brings us into togetherness or unity with him it also is important because God just doesn't have love or express love he is love And he demonstrates his love towards sinners like us. We should be doing the same. (coughs) That third point is important because God is sinless and holy. There's no one like him. And he works in us to make us like him and to trust him. And then he is the one who is coming again and will bring everything to a close. And we are living for that day ready at any moment for the Lord to return. I was listening to a sermon. And the man in there, a man who was a friend of mine before he went to heaven, said that he was in the Colorado Rockies in the dead of winter with a group from his church. And they were out walking around and they were by a lake and the lake was completely frozen over. And somebody said, Preacher, I dare you to walk out on that lake. And this guy looked at that lake and he goes, You know, the part of the country I grew up in, the lake might freeze over or the pond might freeze over, but you don't dare walk on it. The ice is just too thin. And they kind of, you know, kept on pushing him. And so finally he started out very carefully on that ice. And as he walked out, he was only willing to go so far because he didn't trust the ice. And he said that I walked out just far enough that I knew I could swim back if I had to. And he goes, and there I am walking very gingerly, very carefully, expecting at any moment to hear a crack and expecting to fall through. He said, but I didn't. Then I looked out and on the middle of that lake, way out in the middle of it, There's a guy sitting there that made a hole in the ice and he's got a fishing line down through the hole and he's sitting on an orange crate and he's having the time of his life fishing and he's not afraid at all. He said, I got thinking about that. What's the difference? He said, well, some people will tell you it's the amount of your faith. And he goes, not really. He goes, I didn't have hardly any faith in the ice and yet it held me up. And that guy had a lot of faith in the ice and it held both of us up. But he said, it wasn't our faith that held us up. It was the ice that held us up. The object of our faith held us up. And he said, and the other thing that struck him was, both of us were being held up by the ice, but only one was enjoying it. 
You see, today, it's not your faith that holds you up. It's your faith in Christ. And Christ is the one that holds you up. You know, the problem is, some of you are not enjoying your walk with the Lord. Why is that? Because you see, that guy that was ice fishing, he knew the ice better than the preacher knew the ice. The preacher didn't know the ice. He wasn't from that part of the country. He didn't know how deep the ice was. He didn't know how far out he could go. He just didn't know, and therefore he didn't trust. And because he didn't trust, he didn't enjoy. But the guy ice fishing, he knew the weather. He knew the season. He knew the lake. He knew the ice, and he's out there having a ball, and he's doing his ice fishing. What's the point? You can't really trust a God you don't. No. And as you get to know him better, you trust him more. And as you trust him more and you realize who he is and what he has done, then you begin to enjoy your Christian experience, your Christian life, even through the trials of life. The disciples were out on the boat. The big storm comes up and Jesus is asleep. Master, wake up. Don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus rebuked them for their little faith. You know why? Because Jesus was enjoying the ride, even in the storm, taking a nap in the boat. The disciples were panicked because they didn't really know him. So what do you mean they didn't know him? They'd followed him. Yeah, but there's a difference between knowing someone and knowing someone. Right? Say, so how do you know that? Because after he rebuked the wind and the waves, they go, what kind of a guy is this? That's not King James Version, by the way. Why? They didn't know him. They had to know him. And if we're ever going to be unified the way Paul prayed, we've got to know our God. If we're ever going to love the way Paul prayed for us to love, we've got to know our God. If we're ever going to be holy, not in the sight of man, but in the sight of God particularly, we're going to have to know Him and love Him and follow Him. And if we're going to finish well, we've got to know Him and be ready at any given time for His return. And that prayer covers all the bases. Because when you have those things operating in your life and in your church, guess what? You won't have to worry about any of the other stuff, will you? It'll take care of itself. First things first, let's get to the root. So I'm going to ask us to bow our heads and to close our eyes. And would you pray with me from your heart? Father, this is what we pray for us. This is what we pray for our church. And the church is us. So we're praying this for us individually. Father, I pray that you'd bring us together. Let us be in unity and harmony with you, with your word, and with other believers. I pray that you would give us a love that would fill our lives and overflow to other people, saved and unsaved alike. I pray that we would be holy, that we wouldn't play games with sin and trifle with things we know were wrong. I pray that we would consider them as enemies and we could die to self. And I pray, Father, that we may be ready at any moment for the shout of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. And I pray that when we finish, we would not just finish, but finish well for the glory of God. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. God bless you and thank you for your time.